This is Books for Breakfast, a podcast where we talk about books and writing. I'm Enda Wiley. And I'm Peter Sir. And you're all very welcome to this morning's show. We're very much looking forward to chatting to poet John McAuliffe about his selected poems. But first of all, we haven't talked to each other for a while about books that we've been reading and literary news that's been catching our attention recently. So Enda, is there anything that you have been enjoying lately? Yeah, it is great to have a chat, I think, Peter. We haven't done it in quite a while, actually, about things that, you know, we've been enjoying reading. And I'd like to give a shout out to this beautiful book, which arrived from Wernie Connell, Arts Officer for Leash County Council. You can see me holding it up there, Peter. Many thanks to Mirren for sending it on. It's called In Trust, In Gratitude, In Hope. And it's a publication which accompanies the 10th anniversary exhibition of the same name at the Leash Art House. 64 artists in total. They're associated with the Leash Art House since its establishment 10 years ago. They took up the call and they responded to the final line of the poem Window Seat by Pat Bourne, which was especially commissioned for the occasion in trust, in gratitude, in hope. And it's a fantastic book. It's really quite an outstanding selection of artworks at the Leash Art House. And I just want to say as well that they're all available for visitors to go in and engage with over the coming months. Curated by Monica Flynn. There's work by Martin Gale, Alice Marr, Nick Miller, Risha Duffy, to name some of the artists. And there's a multitude of art forms as well. There's painting, textiles, sculpture, photography, film, all available now for the public to see. And as a book and an exhibition, I think it kind of renews our faith in the whole creative process. And I really love that they've responded to a poem. It's so nice, I think, when there's a collaborative quality to a project, isn't it, Peter? Sure is. But I see you've got another book in your hand too. It looks like a novel. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, I think sometimes it's just great just to read, just read something that you've never read before. And a writer that I'd heard absolutely fantastic praises about is the writer Paul Lynch. And uh, Philip Myers said it's a brilliant hypnotic book, this book, The Black Snow. And I love kind of precise but poetic prose. And I know I've spoken before on this podcast about Eugene McCabe's Death and Nightingales set in Fermanagh in 1883, a masterful novel of this kind of calibre, poetic prose. And it's not a novel that you'd easily forget. And I think The Black Snow by Paul Lynch is another novel that I've been recently reading that you would not forget, Peter. It's impressive. It's a moving achievement. He's thematically diverse as a novelist. He's a gifted writer. His books to date include Red Sky in the Morning, Grace, which won the Kerry Group Novel of the Year Award. And another beautiful novel, Beyond the Sea, uh, is one that I'd really like to read as well. But of Black Snow, the novel that I'm holding up here, the American writer Ron Rash, who I really like as well, he said, it's a dark, mesmerising study in obsession, despair and secrets held for too long. So it's the kind of book that I really like, you know, secrets held for too long. I immediately want to read it and see what are the secrets, what's going on in this book. So tell us something about the Black Snow then. I mean, what, what period of time is it set in, first of all? Well, it's set in 1945, which kind of was a relief for me, actually, to leave the contemporary world and to go back in time. And it opens in a farm in Donegal. The farm owner is a man called Barnabas Kane. What a brilliant name. And he's moved to Donegal from America with his wife, Eskra. She herself was born from Tyrone folk who'd taken the boat to New York years before. And Barnabas and her, they met in New York and they, re- they returned to the county of Donegal to set up a new life with their son, Billy, when he was young. But when the book starts, he's now a teenager. At the starting point of this novel, uh, it's a fire 
um, that starts up in the buyer. Isn't that right? Yeah, it's quite a slow start, but there is drama there. A fire starts up and Matthew Peebles, who's Barnabas's farmhand, they both run towards, across the fields, towards the fire. They're trying to save the cattle that are in there. And actually, I was just thinking I could read a short little piece, Peter, for you, just to give a sense of his writing, because his writing okay. style is absolutely brilliant. We came upon the pasture field and what we saw was a helix of black smoke that hid the house, spread like squid ink in water. The west end of the buyer's roof was blazing. Smoke sidled from its windows like water streaming backwards over rocks, curled towards the roof where it made with darker smoke a sickening union. He ran into the yard and saw Matthew Peoples working the long handle of the pump, the huge tree arms on him. A bucket slung over the pump's snout and water sloshing in. Matthew Peoples turned with his face lit as if by rage and he began at a run towards the fire, swung the bucket back and pitched into the air a river. The water travelled for a moment, glittering and strangely beautiful, until it fell dimly upon the roof like a stone met with an ocean. Barnabas ran to him, grabbed at his shoulder. Fuck that, he said. He pulled him by the arm and pointed. They ran to the bar's double doors and stood facing them. A wrath of smoke slides through the cracks as if the fire were but a small thing. And of course, this fire has big consequences, isn't that right? Yeah, the fire is catastrophic for Barnabas, not just financially, but also emotionally. And to give too much away about it, but a a huge catastrophe happens. And there's suspicion in the community. There's the disintegration of the marriage, the financial fallout that happens to Barnabas's family. And any effort he makes to get himself back on track is scuppered by the ill will of the community. So it's quite a dense and dark novel. What is it that makes it kind of work best or stand out for you in particular, Enda? Well, for me, Peter, I think that's a good question. And you could hear there the prose that I was reading out. It's all in Paul Lynch's storytelling, which is the stuff of tragedy, but it's also his use of language. For me, it's so distinctive and it's so finely made. Actually, I have to admit that when I began the book, the first few pages, I read them a few times again and again and again because I just found the writing so beautiful. And like Eugene McCabe, who I spoke about earlier, Paul Lynch is nuanced. He's daring the way he reinvents the rural novel through language that is richly textured. It's layered. It's so precise. And the words he writes have a great beauty. And I I actually felt that they had the heft of poetry about them too. This is a haunting novel. It's about violence and horror, but it's also about love and its destruction within a marriage and a family. It's a really fine book. So I'm looking forward to reading the rest of his novels. It's great to discover a writer like that, I think, that you, you suddenly think this is great. I really enjoy it. Indeed. So that was Enda talking about In Trust, In Gratitude, In Hope, 10 years at the Leash Art House, and also Paul Lynch's novel, The Black Snow, published by Quercus. And as usual, all details are available on www.booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. Today's imperative, after Horace, Ode 1 7. Others have herb life, bog land, the bird sanctuary, or man made canals and urban decay, and they have international flights of fancy too. But wherever they go, it all looks and sounds the same to me 
mountains, some work, a nice sunrise that none of the other tourists sees, or an epiphany that signals a deeper engagement with the local patois, native literature. Then there are the Argonauts who labour in the interstices of a language or two at most, and that crowd whose ambition is to introduce gender to the reader who hasn't got one on him. Long warm-ups, agreed movements from A to B, and put up the shutters with a lyrical turn or various little-known fabrics and figures, such as you often find in those who use family detail as glitter to stud the rough black rock of their fictions. And I like all this, but it doesn't live in me. It doesn't wake me up in my skin at night. I'd rather sing to you about what's imperative. So listen. Take your mind off the stresses and anxiety of life, and whether you're in a southern town like Cork or Montpellier, or even Washington or Rome, go pour yourself a glass of wine. Now, imagine the kind of man who trusts himself to fortune and says, let us go wherever it takes us. We've heard that a better life awaits us, and we've seen worse. Today, banish worry, exile it. The night's young now, and soon we'll be back to the grind. In fact, maybe tomorrow. Oh, thanks very much. That was John McAuliffe. I think it's a bit early to pour ourselves a glass of wine at the breakfast table. It was really wonderful hearing you reading today's imperative from your selected poems published by Gallery Press in 2021. Well, John McAuliffe was born in 1973. He grew up in Listowel, County Kerry. He studied at NUI Galway and has since 2002 lived in the UK, where he's Professor of Poetry at the Centre for New Writing at the University of Manchester. He has published five collections with Gallery Press, A Better Life 2002, which was shortlisted for a Forward Prize, Next Door 2007, and Of All Places 2011, which was a Poetry Book Society recommendation. The Way in 2015 was joint winner of the 2016 Michael Hartnett Award for Best Collection and the Kabul Olympics. His Selected Poems was published just last autumn. He curated the Poetry Now Festival in Dunleary Ratdown between 2003 and 2007. And for three years, he chaired the Irish Times Poetry Now Award for Best Collection. In 2010, he held a Heimbold Chair in Irish Studies at Villanova University, and he is also Associate Publisher and Editor with Carcanet Press. And we might go back and talk about that later on, John. And I was just thinking, God, the Poetry Now Festival, that's so, I so miss that festival. Where is it? We want, we want it back, you know. But uh, John's poetry is characterised, I think, by, by its formal skill and, and inventiveness. It's often kind of very striking images, descriptive, brio, and, and great variety. The poems interrogate domestic life, the meaning of home, the relationship between Ireland and England. And they often deal with the experience of living between both places and navigating that fault line. They reflect a world where global politics intrudes on individual lives. And John McAuliffe, by now recognised as one of the leading poets of his generation, has succeeded in developing a poetry that has room for the Manchester Arena bombing and the tumultuous Brexit debates, as well as the personal and, and domestic kind of concerns. So it's a line the poems walk with power and eloquence, and we're very glad to welcome you to Books for, for Breakfast, John, to talk about your selected poems. Thank you very much, Peter, and lovely to talk to you and to hear all that. I'll be, I'm, I'm, I'm full of shame at hearing me, at my, hear myself talk oh, about good, that good, way. Oh, good, good, good. <laughs> it's, 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 yeah, it's great to, to begin with a bit of breakfast and embarrassment is always, is always a good thing. And I, I, actually, John, I might start because with that poem that you just read, you know, because I'm just interested, I really know where you take that Horace poem, you know, and that notion of, of a better life, which gives the title to that 
Now, the book that it appears in. And, but that notion of kind of living in the moment and banishing worry and exiling it with wine. And I wonder, can you still do that Horatian thing of banishing cares with wine and setting out the next day on boundless seas? I, I can. You know, it is one of, the, one, of the, one of the, I don't know if it's a genetic gift or what it is, but that feeling of being able to enjoy the hour um, and the day um, without having to think too too much about the year um, or the future is something that I have somehow, um, in spite of uh, lots of other competing pressures, managed to retain. I think it's part of writing poems as well. I think it is an escape from your historical moment so often, as, as you and Endo both know, that lovely freedom that you get, that you, you're entering other times um, when you're writing and you can you can somehow access them. So yeah, I do. And I love that yeah. in poems. I love it. I, I think Horace who I came to via Odin, I think, probably. And then various, yeah. even in the, all the terrible translations of Horace that are out there, you can still feel that pulse yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. of, of a kind of a celebration of the moment and that wish that I, that I love in his poems. Indeed, and, and, and likewise, and, and somebody like that, that I go back to, to, to a lot. But I like, I mean, I mean that's obviously, in, that's from your first book. And, that, and I mean, those early poems are often... They're often very kind of they're they're both rooted and but they're also full of really unexpected leaps. I think the way you'll kind of unlike things get yoked together. I mean, I was thinking of the poem, you know, your father's tinnitus, for instance, and the machine that makes the machine that kind of deals with it mm-hmm. is like the kind of interference in a in a relationship and memories that you know that can't be switched off. And you know, there's domestic life that plays a big part, and you have children's games, disputes with neighbors, love and death, and so on. But you know, it's very various and kind of questing and questioning or self-questioning body of work as you progress from book to book. And I wondered about the task of putting a selected together out of all that. I mean, you know, in one on, in one sense, it's a chance for you to see your work whole and decide on what's important to yeah. you, what sticks in terms of, you know, theme and approach and so on. And But it's also a chance for the reader to get an overview of your work to date. Now, I just wondered... And I know because obviously you're an editor yourself. Was it a daunting or straightforward process? Did it involve any rewriting? Because I know, you know, just looking back at some of the work, I remember seeing differences between work I'd seen in journals or, uh, you know, online. And then I, look, I saw a version in the book that was quite different. And I, I just wondered about that as, as well. That's, it's, it is very interesting, Peter, trying to look back on 20 years of writing. And it's a different thing to putting together the individual books. So to, to kind of start at the end, yeah, I did, I did a little bit of, of like when you're leaving things out, I guess it's a sort of rewriting. And then there were three or four poems, I think, where I, 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 I did, I got rid of a little something that I, yeah. that I wasn't sure of, but the process of putting the books together and of getting the poems right for the book brings me to the limit of what I can do with poems usually. So there, there isn't that much reshaping or, or tinkering. And the very funny, uh, the very odd thing, I, I, I wonder if you feel the same, is when you have the poems done and the books out of the way, you wish for them to have lives of their own rather than to be kind of flustering around them and trying to interfere with the life that they might have. And I always have this very, very strong sense as well that the poems, my intentions for them, are, are my understanding of what they've done changes over the years. You know, so that when I, so for example, when I was, I, I got stuck, I suppose, for a while when I was in my kind of late twenties, when I was trying to write my second book, I was living in London, trying to, and trying to, um, yeah. you know, find work and, and do different things to get by. And I found my poems were just getting shorter and shorter. And our, our children were really small. They were up really early. I was exhausted. <laughs> I had less and less time to do the work. And I can remember just trying to think, this is a, this is a, 
this is a real issue. And I, I suddenly realized that I had to absorb what was happening to me in terms of their lives and my life as a parent into the poems <laughs> because it, it was so substantially massive a part of, of my life at that point. And at the time I thought, oh, well, I was, I was writing poems about children, but actually thinking about time as a parent introduces anxieties and morbidities and a sense of being mortal. So these poems that I thought were celebratory about children seem to me now to be edged blackly and bleakly <laughs> with a sense of, um, of time, which I, I just didn't notice that, didn't notice then. So I, I do, I, I did leave the poems alone for the most part. And I think that my understanding of what the poems do will, will be very different to how other readers pick up on them. And I'm very, I'm very happy with that. I try to step away from them and always be thinking about the next poem. So in that sense, doing the selected poems was, it was a little bit daunting yeah. having to read back and think about weirdly trying to remember my, my attitudes towards the poems as I wrote them, as opposed to being, you know, five books the other side of them um, as well. It is interesting because I mean there are there are poets who who will go back and kind of tinker and tinker and, and kind of rewrite their younger selves. I mean I think I mean Jake Mann's a classic example who yeah. you know who regarded himself as writing the one book that his life kind of yeah. represented and, and and felt free at you know whatever age to go back and and rewrite what he was doing in his twenties. And I always sort of resist that. I think oh please, you know what, I guess what, we what still have the other poems, no. don't we? <laughs> Sorry, right. you know, we, I guess we still have the other poems, don't we? Of his That's as well. The thing. You know, that's you the know, thing. So, yeah, yeah, that's the thing. John, you, I mean, so I was going to say, because uh, you, you grew up in a stole and, you know, it's a place that's left its mark on your work. And it's a place obviously you still return to. And the town, the river, the silvery dark, the co-op in the distance humming its bottom line. And the famous the stole Arms, of course, where we've all been and drunk too much. And, you know, obviously it's a famously literary town. And I was just wondering, I mean, did any part of that literary heritage or activity have an influence on your becoming a poet? And what is it that kind of draws you back to Listole physically and, and imaginatively? I, I moved to Listole when I was 11 and my father worked in the bank. So we, we moved we moved towns quite a bit. And you know that life, Peter, yourself as well. Yes. <laughs> but and when I arrived in Listole, I was a, I was a reader. I was a, I was a kind of a studious, you know, read a lot of my, my mother was a great reader and my father too. Um, so a lot of books in the house. And when I got to Listole, there was a, there was a great library and there was a sense that writing was an ordinary activity. And that, that has always stuck, stuck with me. And I, I think it's really quite unusual. You know, John B and his son Billy, who is a friend of mine, were just downtown i'd see brian mcmahon walking around um town as well he was retired as a school as the school principal um by that point but i went to the primary school you know when i so there were just memories mm -hmm. of and and the actual seeing writers around the place in a very ordinary way and it wasn't writers week so much as just the fact that writing like when we, when i was at school there were a lot of we were all you know yeah and again it's a it's a market town and, and Ireland in the 1980s was very depressed economically. The, you know, the idea of the church and there was still a very, yeah. very uh, kind of grim uh, moral environment around the body and things like that as well. So for a teenager to grow up in that environment, there were lots of things that could be done. And, you know, we, of course, we formed terrible punk bands. But we also tried to write plays and tried to write, and, and it was sort of, there, were, there was a lot of ordinary writerly activity going on in the town. And I think, I think that's really shaping. So that I've always tried to think of how poetry is in conversation with the other ordinary activities of modern life. 
the other thing I, th- I should say about the stole is that it's you know it's the home of Kerry Co-op. It's a big factory town. It's got this weird stock ex- stock exchange element in terms of the little bits of wealth which are around the town. So it's really it's 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 um, one of like Declan Kybert's thing about about modernity in Ireland and the weird modernness of even the fringes of different parts of Ireland. So the stole felt very much in touch with modernity to me as well. And when I go back there now, as I do every summer. And in between times, if I can, my family are still in the town and I have uh, lots of friends that I love to see there. And I, I, so it, it's got a great bookshop now in the middle of town as well. So, you know, it's still it's still a very, the town that I knew, it's changed. It's so much more prosperous in many ways. But a lot of the, the things that were really important and shaped me growing up, the, the idea that writing mattered, that all of the, the kind of rage and disappointments and things like that had places to go in art uh, are still there in the town, I think. Yeah, what a great place to grow up. I'm getting a bit jealous here listening to you. <laughs> but I'm thinking as well, I'm just listening to you as well, that the, the poems seem to move back and forth between England and Ireland. You're a poet of Manchester as well of our, as of Ireland. And I'm reminded of the yeah. central sequence in The Way In where you tour England and Ireland. Mm. And does that sense of occupying two really, in a way, quite different realities stimulate you as a poet? Yeah, it, it really does. And uh, um, I... First of all, I love travel writing. You know, it's one of these things that I've sort of I've always liked. I like I've liked writers that can take me to other places. So in that sequence, I was I was I was trying to kind of do a tour in the way that they sort of you know used to be done by travel writers. And in those books, you know, say tours of Ireland that were written by German or American or British writers, you you definitely learned more about Germany, the US, or England than you did about. Contempt the, the Ireland they were visiting. So that sense of projection is, is where you're learning about two places in them. And living in the UK um, since 2002, in other words, after the, you know, the uh, Good Friday Agreement and until Brexit was a very peculiar moment for Ireland and Britain where there, there, there was a, people where uh, it was very easy for me to be Irish in the UK and though in, in the, in that period, I think, and their travel because of ferries and the flights were so much cheaper. So my experience of living away and being able to travel home all the time was very, very different from what has existed at any previous time in history. And since Brexit and the pandemic, any time after, any time afterwards. So it was, it was actually being able to, to live in two places at once, to be able to be emotionally involved with the north of England and with Manchester and then with Kerry and with Ireland and with Dublin. It was, it was terrific. My idea is that they were in conversation with one another always and could be mixed across rather than um, being in opposition. And I did feel like there are, there's a generation of us who sort of have been over and back like that, who had a different take on that relationship because of the, the way things could be adjacent rather than crossed in how we in how we wrote about place and how we wrote about travel. So yeah, yeah, it gives we, a great great variety to your life, really, doesn't it, yeah. John? And you can live in both places, but seamlessly. And um, I had studied in England ten years previously yeah. to that, and it was it was very different. So it was great that, as you say, you arrived at a good time. But we'd love to hear another poem from you, actually, John. Now, I think you're going to read on Earth, and I was just wondering, do you want to say anything about it before you you lead us into it? So this poem on Earth has a couple of references in it. One is to the movie, Richard Lickdater's movie, Boyhood, 
which 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 comes up. And of course, it's a handy title for me in terms of what the poem is doing, as well as being a great a great kind of life docu- documentary style approach to living in a way that I'm very interested in the poems anyway. And I like his poetics, so I was very happy to sneak that in. And then there's a word later in the poem called petrichor, and um, which is that scent which um, Irish and uh, Manchester uh, people know very very well that that smell of rain drying off of stone and that very particular. I had to look that up, that, John. That we know. So here's the poem. I- I had to. I had to. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the smell we know, if not the word for it. I can remember finding the word. That's and going, it. It's oh, like, what a great, no, exactly. a great word. And even because I wrote, I wrote that. Def, def, yeah, the smell accompanying rain after a long, warm period. There you go. Great yeah. word. Yeah. On earth, at the bus stop under the horse chestnut, we tally the length of boyhood against the babysitter's plans for later, and waiting, see the leaves have started to wilt. Brown at their July edges, losing a little of spring's climb upward. Afterwards, emerged from the dark into a thunderstorm, we see out the trees arching welcome to spikes of lightning, its base flooding, growing into reduced circumstances, swelling up, but still about. Is this what it means to be someone? I'm not saying anything, but 24 hours later, the smell in the air is of rain drying off stone. Petrichor. The tree's slow and seasonal evaporation. A way of answering to a day, to years of them, that we step into and speak up for, to you. There is no one else I am talking to. Thanks, John. I, find, I have to say I find that a fascinating poem because it, it's actually just two poems in that 2015 collection called, I'm sorry, yeah. The Way In and called On Earth. And I thought that was interesting in, in, in itself, because maybe there are two takes on the same kind of, of moment. And in that one that you just read, I mean, you present a very typical kind of domestic scene, but you do it with very kind of characteristic, you know, forensic detail. And then you get from describing the tree in a, in a thunderstorm to, to suddenly this kind of, is this what it means to, to be someone? And, and it's kind of, as a, as a reader, it's kind of a, it's a surprising kind of jolt in, in, in a way. It's a very interesting trajectory i think that kind of intense observation but a way of answering to to experience it seems like was this an important poem for it you? was I, I i guess i i, I love the way poems can surprise you as a writer you know you're just going somewhere and all of a sudden something dawns on you and it's a, it becomes a fact in your life this sense of being rooted in a place as i feel i am here doesn't mean that you're not constantly being surprised by things. And in fact, this is something that Morris Reardon, I remember saying to me when I um, first knew Morris and he'd been living near Nunhead in South London. And he was saying that he was reminding me of the idea of the poets training in the Irish, the Irish bardic poets and sleeping during the day and working at night so that they wouldn't be distracted by kind of what's ephemeral or and what's fleeting and by changes in the world around them. And there is something when you're in one place long enough things sink in, what's permanent and what's elemental. And this felt like one of those poems for me where having been in a long, a long time in a place, I wasn't being distracted by anything. And I was, I was trying to think about, you know, what, what this, um, what it, what it is to, what it is to be something more existential, I think. Yeah. Well, just listening to Peter there, he said the word trajectory. And I was interested in the way in the Kabul Olympics, it has a poem from, about the Manchester Arena bombing, then leads into a sequence about gun running aided by Libya. And then you're off the coast of Ireland as you're growing up. And is is that the way inspiration works for you? It's like nearly a series of sideways shifts 
Does yeah. it feel like that to you sometimes, John? It really does. And I love the idea of 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 leaving things unresolved, I guess, and having um, things side by side. Like one of the things about living in Manchester is you're living in a city very different to the places that I lived in Ireland when I was there, which were very monocultural. And this city is, uh, you know, it's there are 200 languages spoken here every day and there are people from all over the world and it's, you know, racially very, very mixed in terms of the schools our kids go to, in terms of the students I teach, in terms of my walk and the bus rides and the cycling or whatever that I would do around the city. And so trying to find a way to bring that into the Kabul Olympics is really important to me. And the Libyan community in Manchester is kind of, there's a lot of people from around, around near here where I live in South Manchester. But also it just reminded me so much of that weird Libyan presence in Ireland in the 80s and the gun running and Gaddafi's people coming in. And to be, for me to be able to identify a way to draw what I knew as a child into what I see around me in terms of thinking about race and globalization and migration was really, I just, I just found it really fascinating. And then trying to think, I suppose the other big change just to go back is, go, is going back to, you know, it to North Kerry, which has elected a Sinn, a Sinn Féin TD for almost, for most of the time that I've been away, which again is just such a shock to me always as somebody who's gone away. I've never gotten, I've never gotten used to, that's a part of the culture that has completely changed since I, since I have left. But then trying to think about the way that that gun running and the way that li- that Libyan thing got, ab- got, got absorbed in a way that's not all mm-hmm. negative, you know, and there's a sort of a, it's not rejected. It's part of the story, but it's not the whole story about those men, I guess, in a way that I'm, I'm just as a stranger to it, but I'm very interested in and trying to loop that into what's happening around here as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because also something else that strikes me is that by the time we get to the, the Kabul Olympics, that book. Mm-hmm. I mean, something something's changed. I think in, in your work, in a sense that, and you said it. You said it at one point: the relatively carefree day to day life and travel of the twenty first century immigrant life in the UK yeah. had begun to to see more fragile. And you alluded to that, in fact, earlier. And I was just wondering: the poems kind of here are reflecting that unease. You talk about their sense of being on the edge yeah. of a a different and not necessarily better world. Well, don't we, haven't we all felt that, <laughs> you know? Uh, it can't, maybe it is just being here at this point, but it's, it has been a very strange last five years, the five years in which Kabul Olympics was, those poems were being written and, and drafted. Things changed around me and around my life in a way that you just realise how much of the mercy you are yes. of historical forces that are completely beyond you. And I definitely lived, I think, in a little bit of a fool's paradise in my sense of the, of the moment. I still cherish those, those moments and those hours, but I, I'm much more conscious of how uh, little control I have over their occurring. So Brexit was one yeah. thing, clearly. And then yeah, I guess, you know, what climate and climate refugees are, are, are doing to our, how they're changing Europe as well and how Europe is responding to that. So there, there are lots of like terrible changes and, the stories of our, our kind of, you know, the West's involvement in Afghanistan and things like that, and how that how that comes home inevitably um, to us in our daily lives. And I'm very interested. In the way, I mean, the, the way the way that comes into the, the title poem. So, I mean, it's I find that I mean, it's an elegy for your friend Caroline Chisholm, and, and and you know, you imagine her imagined world in a way. So it's like a, it's a poem, but also about art in in a way. And I was wondering, might you lead that lead us into that, and and then perhaps read it read it for us. Sure. And um, well, Caroline was a novelist, and I guess that I was really 
she was, she was, she was almost there um, with her, with her, it would have been her second book that she was working on with me, but her first novel was, was there, thereabouts as well. And it was drawing on her own experience and working in Kabul and working for charities. But the frailty of the imagined world and the lost futures, you know, man's phrase, but the, that, that sense that there are ways of imagining things which disappear really struck me when you just meet somebody like that, an artist in their prime, whose illness all of a sudden just meant that she was not going to be able to finish these projects or make them part of the conversation. And it does, you know, as you, as a writer, you, you do, you do feel that, don't you? That, that sense of other people's imagined visions of the world and how tenuous they are and how hard it can be to support them. So the poem is about that. It's called the Kabul Olympics, which is one of these imagined things that never happened in memory of Caroline Chisholm. She decided on swimming the channel to think through the chances of a character escaping the camps in Calais. When the weather turned, the organiser had to cancel, but training in the murky Dover water was not all beside the point. Swimming Pool Hill would be the name of the novel. The hill was where a swimming pool had been, built by a Russian dreaming up in Olympics in Kabul, before the rise of the Taliban. She lived with story. She added one word to another to make more probable what ought to happen. The unfinished novels were visitations, chances we should take. While she wrote, we listened, friends piling now out of the slow black car. When the weather turned, she knew what it meant. She had terrible look is what she wouldn't say. Her laughter started at the back of her throat and tilted her head. She'd call up after writing her character into the channel. Chances were she couldn't tell from day to day where she'd be living herself. Younger, she rode off on a horse. It was a white horse seen from an orchard. Her amazed father, diminishing on the border, is unforthcoming on the details. They didn't matter. This isn't a story. That noise is probably the wind. They drained the swimming pool at the top of the hill, a quiet spot to test for innocence. She could hear its dry echo. Something unspoken can be something known. Saying it would be another desperate matter. Oh, so that's John McAuliffe and he's reading, he's reading his poem, The Kabul Olympics. Wonderful elegy for your friend, John. So I was just wondering as well, you do editorial work for Carcanet. What's it like to work as a poetry editor and does it affect your own creative work? You know, because I worked as a reviewer for so many years and it's a little bit like that. I, there's a pressure that I'm, I'm so aware of how many other voices there are out there that it kind of, it, I find it quite committing to my own work because I, I sort of see how important, you know, mm-hmm. it, it makes me um, concentrate more on what I'm doing and to make sure that what I'm doing has a, is aware of what other people are doing well and to avoid repetition if I can at all, mm-hmm. as best I can. So that's one element of doing mm-hmm. the editing work alongside and the reviewing work and things like that and teaching where you're trying to try to carve out the space for your own work, knowing the pressures of all the other voices around them. But working at Carcanet has been so, it's just very exciting. You know, we took in 500 manuscripts last June for an open submission window and spent a long time with them. And I found, you know, some books from that, uh, which, which we'll be publishing over the next couple of years. And it's just a pure pleasure working with working with poets on their poems. Almost always a pure pleasure, you know. Can you imagine because, this nice like, two of us in here. <laughs> God help us. But five five hundred manuscripts yeah. is an awful lot, isn't it? Yeah, terrifying. 
Yeah, that was terrifying. I must say, <laughs> I didn't. Uh, it didn't. I didn't. I just. It, it. At that point, it's very hard to keep your concentration and make sure you're doing justice to the work of the people who've, who've sent yeah. sent it in. But there is an understanding of how much poetry is being written and how few books are going to be published by a press like you know, by like by an independent an independent poetry press. So yeah, there's that. Yeah. But then you know, we're working with Padraig Regan on their first book, Some Integrity, last year. That was really, really. Terrific. And to see that book come out last month, I was just, I was very excited by it. So you're very, it's very, very pleasing work to see, to see it going yeah, through the process great. and going out into the world. Yeah, it's very celebratory as well. And it was great to see Victoria Canifick do so well as well. Oh and my God. Yeah. yeah. It's been so brilliant working with Victoria. Like that was the first book that I commissioned and took on and edited at Carcanet. And I was so, like, you know, and it's had, it's had the kind of fair wind behind it and the sort of, success and readership that you just want for all of your books, really. It's great, great. And, and of course, we had Victoria um, on this as well. So anybody anybody curious about Victoria again should go back and listen to our interview with her. So. No, I was just actually going to ask you as well, John, are you writing new poems? What's going on with you yourself creatively? Yeah, I am. <laughs> so like, you know, I don't know, I am. I'm writing away. I'm writing the selected poems. This is a little bit of a pivot point because you are reflecting on what you've done and you're sort of conscious of your, you, it makes you a little bit more conscious of how your process works. So it, that helped me to bring into focus some new work that I'm, that I'm doing and always reading and always trying to absorb what I'm reading into what I'm writing as well. I think it is a strange time when you bring out your selected. I, when uh, that happened to me as well, you feel very strange because you've gone backwards and suddenly you have to shoot forwards. It's a, it's a, it's a peculiar time, isn't yeah. it, John? It certainly is. It certainly is. And life changes all around us all the time as well. Our children are 20, 18 and 14 now. So actually there are, there's a little bit more time again as well. You know, these are different. So you, so you can kick them out. You can kick, you can kick, you get, you get to kick at these two of them out now. Don't you? <laughs> I could say, who knows? There you who go. Knows? There you go. He mightn't want to, Peter. <laughs> he mightn't want to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't, I can't, well, I can't imagine kicking, kicking our yeah. one out either. But listen, John, you mentioned, you talked about reading there and I thought it's now maybe, um, it's time to, to move you to the terrifying toaster challenge where we ask a guest to talk about, you know, a book that, that, that they love or that resonates with them for as long as it takes to make a, a slice of toast. And you've chosen something, I think, very interesting. So will I get the, I'll get the bread ready then, Peter, will I put it in the toaster? <laughs> okay, John, are you ready? We're going to count you in one, two, three, and off you go. So the book I've chosen for the toaster challenge is In the Same Light by Wang Mei. And it's a book just out of 200 poems from the Tang era in China. I've, I've always loved these poems. And one of the first poets I, I, I loved when I was starting to read poetry seriously was Ezra Pound for his Chinese poems and the kind of very unusual rhythms that he brought into English through that work. And Wang Mei is really, really interested in what Pound did and what she can do differently when she's translating these amazing poets, Po Chu Yi, Tu Fu and others who you'll, and Li Po, who, who you'll, who you'll know from other translations. So Wang Mei is a Dublin-based poet. She published three books in the late 60s and early 70s in the US with Harcourt Brace. She, her mother was a poet. She herself grew up in Singapore, but she moved to Dublin in 1974 and she, she didn't publish, she, she published another book in the US about six or seven years ago. And when I came across her, I sort of was surprised I hadn't known her. So I, I contacted her through her husband who, who had a, a, a an email online. And we struck up a conversation about the work that she'd been doing. And she had literally just finished doing this translation 
of the Tang poets or finished a draft of them. Um, so we, we started talking about the book and it's, it is, as I say, just out. And the poems have an amazing poise and they have a sense of space on the page, which I just love. They don't have that forward momentum um, towards a, a beginning, a middle and an end, which I think we're very used to, even in other, translation of these po- other translations of these poems. And I thought I would read the last poem in the book, which is an anonymous poem, um, which uses a phrase which was discovered, inscribed on a piece of pottery, I think, and which he, which he uses for the poem. So this poem is Anon. And it's got this amazing sense of time and space, which I love. I was not when you were. I was when you were old. You do not regret that I was born. But I was born late and you not yet young. Tell me, do I regret my time before you or any place I would rather be? I would have loved to see you daily where I lived this side of the sky and you thereafter across the sea on the horn of some promontory, long before you were you, I was. I couldn't wait to know you. I go early to arrive yesterday as butterflies and moths. We were also unborn to be in pursuit of lost flowers, nights on the scent of leaves, ceaseless. Forgive. That's great, John. I have to say, I'm I'm really attracted because because I love Tang Dynasty poems and I love the poets that that, that you mentioned. In fact, it's funny because I was just in the uh, we were both in the Chester Beatty recently. We we're looking at art by Chen um, Zhang Zhen, who who kind of does this kind of micro micro art that you have to look th- at through a, a micro or a magnifying glass. But one of the things he did was he carved two Tang Dynasty poems on a single strand of his oh. wife's hair. <laughs> so, so, I, so I was, I had just had been, had been thinking of, of these poems. And to think of, of and I, to realize, I didn't realize that Wang Mei lived in Dublin. So that's, that's very, very interesting as, as, as well. And, and I think this sounds like a great book. This, this sounds like a book we have to get. So that, so that's, so that yeah. was in the same light, 200 Tang poems for our century by Wong Mei, and it's published, it's out, it's available from, from Carcanet now, is that right? There That's we go. right, yeah. Um, so I'll certainly, I'll certainly be getting, getting, uh, trying to get a hold of that. And that was John McAuliffe talking also about his selected poems, published by the Gallery Press just last autumn. As usual, all details will be available on www.booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. John, thanks a million for coming in. It was great to have you. Thank you both very much. You're very good to have had me on and a pleasure talking to you. I hope I'll see you over there at some point before long. That would be lovely. We, I think we've reached the end of our Books for Breakfast podcast this morning. I'm definitely rushing off to have more coffee. And I'm Enda Wiley and I have Peter Sarah here with me. And Peter, would you like to tell everyone about the details of the podcast if they'd like to listen again? Well, you can subscribe at all the usual sources, Google and Apple and so on. And if you want to check out the notes that go along with this podcast, you can go to booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. And yeah, so. We'll be back again. We'll have the toast on. We'll have the kettle boiling. We will have more books to discuss. And we're looking forward to having you here.